It's appropriate to uh, sing that song. Uh, today um, we uh, meet up with John the Baptist in Luke 3, and we'll read cha- uh, verses 1 to 6. So Luke uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 6. It's found on page 1593. 1593. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Idria and Trachonitis, Licinius, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be lifted in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight and the rough ways smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Our Christmas tree gets decorated with ornaments we've collected over the years. Many years we would give each other an ornament for Christmas. We stopped when our tree got too full. We have a diverse collection of Christmas ornaments. There are elves and shepherds and teddy bears. We even have a a Santa Claus that's got a backpack and hiking boots. We have dancers and reindeer stars and hearts and even a, a little miniature church. But there's one ornament that we don't have, one character we don't have in any of our Christmas decorations. And yet this character shows up in every Advent reading in the lectionary, shows up at the beginning of every one of the Gospels. Preparation for Christ's coming would not be the same without him. Our preparation wouldn't be complete without John the Baptist. John the Baptist challenges our Advent expectations. If you threw a Christmas party, I'm not sure that John would end up on your guest list. He's a loner. Besides, who'd want John showing up looking like the wilderness? Luke tells us, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. John comes on like an Old Testament prophet. He's a living, breathing word from God. We know this because of that phrase, the word of God came to John. That's how all of the Old Testament prophets were introduced. The word of the Lord came too. But John was unique. Matthew tells us, John's clothes were made of camel's hair and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locust and wild honey. See, when people saw him, they thought of Elijah. The prophet Elijah challenged the corruption around him. Elijah came to straighten the way of God's people and the actions of God's kings. He was exactly the kind of person the people of Israel were expecting as a prelude to the Messiah. The last words of the Old Testament in the prophecy of Malachi are this. Look, I'm sending you the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Sending Elijah. For 400 years, the people waited. They were looking for Elijah. 
And then John shows up. He comes with this message of Isaiah. Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. The building of God's superhighway depends on the likes of this bulldozer of a man. John the Baptist is God's heavy equipment. He's come to prepare the hearts of everyone for Jesus. God's good news arrives through the likes of John the Baptist. He's the bridge between Isaiah's word of promise and Luke's words of fulfillment. He's the last of the Old Testament fire and brimstone prophets, and he marks the beginning of the ministry of Jesus Christ. See, John meets us on this frontier of God's new age. He's God's early warning system. Imagine a wildfire like the Paradise Campfire roaring in your direction. It's sweeping the countryside. People aren't expecting it, and suddenly it's upon them. Authorities work their hardest to warn. They want people to get out of their houses so they won't be trapped. They drive around to sound the alarm. They're seeking to get the word out as best they can. Danger is imminent. This is John's work. He sounds the alarm. He's pointing everyone, really, to a new exodus. He shows up in the desert, like God once did, to lead his people to the promised land. He's not there for the people's comfort and prosperity. He's there to lead them to salvation. John signals the end of the world as they knew it. He's like Elijah, turning the people from their sin to the Son of God. See, everyone expected that when Elijah returned, the next one to come would be the one. The next person on the stage would be God's Messiah. No wonder people were streaming out to the desert to meet John. They figured the Messiah was coming. The Messiah would bring God's new world with him. They poured out to the desert where John was to greet God's new day. One pastor notes, God was on the cusp of something new in the universe, and John was desperate to ensure that no one would miss out. After all, the advent of the Christ is serious business, the most serious thing to come along since the original creation. John prepares the people for God's intervention. John the Baptist sets the stage for Jesus' arrival. No John the Baptist, there's no growing sense of expectation. See, our Christmas preparations simply would not be complete without John. John's here to get us ready. John the Baptist shows up in Advent to challenge us, to challenge our expectations. For his message is daunting. He calls us to repent. His message cuts to the heart of our lives. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Our Advent preparation for Christ involves repentance. Now maybe for uh, some of us, words like repent don't really sit well. It's a word that's hard to swallow. I mean, if we're honest, repenting induces guilt and shame we'd rather not have leaves a slightly bad taste in our mouths. I mean, maybe you remember the preachers of former days. They'd raise their voices and pound on the pulpit. They'd immerse us in temporary guilt and remorse. The call to repent reminds us 
of the junk that's in our lives. We have to admit up to our problems, maybe even face the fact that we're wrong. And we're not sure that that's a road we want to take. We want love and acceptance. And yeah, we understand that we need forgiveness, but maybe God can forgive us so that we can remain exactly the way we are. That's not John. And it's not the Bible either. We live in the darkness of sin. John's preaching about our need for repentance brings light and life to our lives. We don't get liberated by trying to forget the reality of our sin. Our lives aren't enhanced by masquerading. We know the truth. We are sinners. We aren't the way we're supposed to be. See, when we deny the weight of our sin, we really have no answer for the questions raised by the world's evils. We know the evils that cause murder and jealousy. They're the same evils that lurk in our hearts. When we not deny the gravity of our failing to be what God desires, then we got to acknowledge that Christians are no different than non-Christians. And we're unable to understand the predicament of our world. All we can really do is chalk it up to the wrong in others or the randomness of life. When we deny sin, we unleash despair and confusion and anger because there's no way to reconcile the depravity we see with the so-called righteousness in us. See, the good news of the gospel is that we know where our problems come from. We have seen the enemy, and he is us. Here's where our problems come from. We've offended God. Psalm 51 says, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what's evil in your sight. So you're right in your verdict and justified when you judge. See, God in His mercy opens up for us the door of reconciliation. The God whom we offend offers us the grace of forgiveness. And repentance, repentance is much more than just, I'm sorry, God, for all my sins. Repentance is, releases whatever is weighing me down so that I can take up my life with God. Repentance is shedding the weight that keeps me from turning to Christ. See, to repent is to recognize not what we did wrong in a certain moment, but to recognize that there are patterns and there are ruts that we cannot break out of. And only by the grace of God in Christ can we turn. To repent is to get honest with God, to get honest with ourselves. What's weighing down my life isn't nearly as important as I make it out to be. To repent is to take stock of what really matters. Not the false hope of this world's yuletide cheer. Merry Christmas that doesn't face the crisis of our sin, our brokenness, and see that God opens a way of life for us is nothing but empty cheer. Someone once told a story about a missionary to China. When communism was uh, breaking in, a missionary family in China was placed under house arrest. They lived this way for years. Then suddenly, one day, a soldier came to their door and told them they had two hours to pack and then they'd be deported. And he said to them that they uh, they could take 200 pounds worth of possessions with them. Nothing more, 200 pounds. 
So for two hours, the family just frantically packed. They argued about what to, to take. I mean, they had lived in China for a long time, long enough to accumulate many treasures. They took out their bathroom scale, and they weighed. Books, valuable but heavy. Antique Chinese vase? Yeah, but what about that brand new radio? Back and forth, weighing and deciding. And finally, just as the soldier returned, they had got it right. They had got it down to 200 pounds of stuff. Are you ready, he asked. Yes, said the family. Did you weigh everything? Yes, we did. 200 pounds, he asked. Yes, on the dot. Did you weigh the kids? The kids? No, we didn't. Weigh them. And suddenly everything, books, vas, radio, clothes, whatever, it all became junk. His words made him take stock and realize what mattered most. His words helped them see clearly what mattered most in their lives. John's call to the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins are words meant for us to take stock. To take stock of what really matters. In the light of God's love in Christ, often what we thought was valuable becomes insignificant. Repent. Leave behind the junk that weighs down your heart and turn to Jesus. God's goodness in Jesus Christ is a greater hope than anything we can buy for ourselves. So we have to turn away from our schemes, from our ways, and turn toward God's way of life. Repent. One day, all people will see God's salvation. God's forgiveness opens the door to Isaiah's vision. The great shalom of God, life as it's supposed to be, will come to all people. One day, the whole creation will experience salvation. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all people will see God's salvation. God will landscape the world to make His entrance into people's lives, straightening the crooked, smoothing the rough places. That's John's message. That's God's word to us. Life opposed to God's way will be unmade. God, by grace, will remake our lives. It's the good news that we want to be prepared for. We want to be ready for God's way of salvation. Be prepared. God will make crooked lives straight. Be prepared because God's good news comes to our rough places and makes them smooth. God's the one who works in our lives until that day when all people will see God's salvation. Perhaps when you heard the opening verses of Luke 3, you figured Luke was rambling on about history. I mean, after all, who cares about tetrarchs and governors and which of us would know Philip from Lysanias from Annas? Well, here's what Luke was doing. See, those names are a listing of the highest-ranking folks at the time of John the Baptist's ministry. Tiberius replaced August Caesar. 
He was one of the most ruthless rulers and was worshipped as a god in much of the eastern part of the Roman Empire. Two of of Herod the Great's sons, Philip and Herod Antipas, had a hold, somewhat shaky, but a hold nonetheless, on the northern kingdom. Rome held the southern kingdom and Jerusalem. And Annas and Caiaphas were the high priests of the temple in Jerusalem. But none of these high-ranking people receives God's good news. Luke tells us that God's word doesn't come through the high and mighty. Caesar might get his name in the history book. Herod might get whatever in the world he wanted. And the religious leaders might be able to keep up their religious rituals. But God's good news doesn't come to their doorstep. God's road doesn't lead through their palaces and temples. God's road goes out to the desert. God goes to where John is. Scott Jose notes, with a fine sense of irony, Luke takes readers from the heights of Roman power and splendor in the person of Tiberius Caesar, down through the ranks of the temple hierarchy, and finally arriving at the bottom of the heap, a lowly man named John who called the desert his home. And it's only when we arrive in the dead wasteland of the wilderness that we encounter the word of God. God's word does not come across Caesar's marble desk, It's not found in Herod's inbox, not even heard by Annas and Caiaphas. Instead, it's received in the most unlikely of places by the most unlikely of people, a bizarre self-caricature of a person named John. That's how God seems to work. That's how God's salvation comes. The salvation highway of God runs to the least, the lost, the lonely, the unloved. God comes to the crooked and the the rough places. See, Rome was known for building roads and bridges throughout the empire. Their interstate system was second to none. But none of their roads could take you to the place you most need to go. You can't travel on Roman roads and find the new world of God. God's road isn't about going to the place of wealth and power. No, God's road more often leads to the place of death and danger. God's road doesn't bypass the chaos. God's road enters the chaos to set it straight, to smooth it out. God comes to the desert place of life in order to defeat the evil and bring back the goodness of his original creation. See, Luke doesn't call us to put our hopes in Washington or Wall Street or Hollywood. Good news ultimately doesn't come to those places or through those places. God's good news comes to the most unlikely of places, those not among the who's who. God arrives with good news of salvation for all people who are the most unlikely. I suppose today we'd hear Luke write, in the 18th year of the 21st century when Donald Trump was president of the United States and Gavin Newsom was governor of California and Mike Restuccio was mayor of Ripon and Steve Timmermans was the executive director of the Christian Reformed Church, the word of God came to Emmanuel Church in Ripon. See, God shows up in the most unlikely of places. Where? God makes his advent into our lives. God comes where the roads are crooked and rough. 
God comes to our desert places. God shows up in the desert of our pain. Into that place where death grabs hold and we live in the misery of being unable to shake it. God shows up in the desert of our misery. Into that place where drugs and death infest our cities or schools. God shows up in the desert of our loneliness. Into that place where alienation drives apart children and parents, husbands and wives, friends and neighbors. God shows up in the desert of our sin. Into that place where we're driving down the highway of our own desire. God's word appears in our wilderness. The treasure of God's grace reaches into our lives even when we're surrounded by garbage. If you don't believe that's true, just look at where our Savior Jesus came into the world. Not a palace. Not a temple. Salvation of God came to this world in a most unlikely place. In a desert sort of place. When the time had fully come, Mary gave birth to a son and laid him in a manger. No neon lights. No viral video. Entering our world in humility was God's first step toward all people seeing the salvation of our God. John the Baptist arrives on the scene sounding an alarm. He preaches repentance. Get rid of all that's weighing you down. Stop pursuing the ways of this world. You'll never see the salvation of God if you are into the who's who of our world. God's good news lands in the most unlikely places. God's good news comes to our desert places, to our pain, to our despair. God's good news comes so that all people from highest to lowest, we'll see the salvation of our God. God's good news comes not in a blaze of light and glory, but in the life and death of utter self-giving love. God's good news comes. Even today, it comes to us. Let's pray together. Earlier we sang, ready my heart. And God, we pray that. That you prepare us, our hearts, our lives, our wills, our minds. That you prepare us for the coming of Jesus Christ. That you help us to, to take stock and to get rid of the junk. The stuff that doesn't matter. The stuff that weighs us down. So that we can look forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. To be ready to receive your salvation. 
so that we would, with all people, be ready to see and receive the salvation of our God in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.